So the Bible teaches that we all seek for joy. God has made us so that every single thing we do is done either to gain joy or to avoid losing joy. And you can see that if you just think about your life a little bit, like the decisions that you've made and the actions that you've taken, if you probe into the reasons why to what the motivation is, you'll see it's to gain joy or to avoid losing joy. Now, here's how Blaise Pascal put it. You're wondering, who is Blaise Pascal? Uh, he was a man who lived in France about the 1700s, and he was a strong follower of Jesus Christ. He was a uh, skilled mathematician. In fact, he was so smart, today's computer language, Pascal is named after him. But he wrote a book, which in French is called Pensées, which means thoughts. And here's what he wrote as thought number 148 in that book. He says this, all men seek happiness. There are no exceptions. However different the means they may employ, they all strive toward this goal. That's what the Bible teaches. All of us in this room, everybody listening to this service, every one of us are doing what we do to seek joy. So that leaves us with the question, where do we find this joy? If this is what we're all seeking, where do we find a true and a filling and a lasting joy? And Jesus answers that question for us in today's passage. Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 24. This passage breaks into three parts. We're going to go through one at a time. He answers a different question for each one. And so this first section, 17 through 20, where is true joy to be found? Now, here's, here's the setting for this passage. Remember last week's passage, which Pastor Ben preached on, Jesus sent the 72 disciples out in order to heal the sick and to preach the good news of the gospel. And now in this passage, they come back, and they are going to report what God has done. So look at what we read in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he, Jesus, said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So the disciples return with joy, celebrating all that God has done for them. And in verse 17, they say, even the demons are subject to us in your name, Jesus. Now, I want you just to stop and think about what that would have meant for these disciples. Remember what demons are. The Bible teaches very clearly that demons are far more powerful than we are in ourselves. And as you read through the Gospels, you see the, the horrifying oppression that demons bring to people. So just imagine that you were one of these disciples, and Jesus has just sent you out to cast out demons, and, and you come up against somebody who is just horribly tormented by demons giving this person anxiety and fear and just overwhelming panic. Or you come upon somebody who is being oppressed by demons such that they are no longer able to hear or to speak, which we also read about in the Gospels. 
Or, as we will see in Luke chapter 13, you come upon someone who for 18 years has been bent over double by an oppressing demon. So there you are in front of this person who's being horribly oppressed by a demon. Just imagine that you're there, and you know what Jesus has called you to do. So, so you, you gulp, and you say, in Jesus' name, come out. And the demon comes out. The demon flees, and they all flee when you command them to leave in Jesus' name. I mean, think of the joy and the celebration. <laughs> Did you see that? That was amazing. Jesus, you're glorious. They were celebrating. And then in verse 18, Jesus joins the celebration. Says, yes, brothers, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you get the big picture of what happens in, in all of history, before Jesus came, the world was under Satan's rule. Because of Adam and Eve's sin and because of all of our sin, God allowed the world to come under Satan's rule. God was still in complete sovereign authority over everything Satan did, but he allowed Satan to horribly oppress people. This was part of the curse that we brought on to ourselves because of our sin. But in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, God makes a promise. Remember the promise? That the Messiah will crush the serpent's head will destroy Satan's work. And that's what happened through Jesus' ministry and the ministry of the disciples. So Jesus is saying, Satan is being defeated. He is falling from heaven. So Jesus joins in their celebration. Then he goes on, verse 19. He says, he's given the disciples authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, which means authority over all the demons, Satan and all of his demonic hordes, he also says he's given them authority over all the power of the enemy and that nothing will hurt them. Now, let's just pause there. When we read statements like that, I hope we stop and think, go, hmm, what does that mean? We need to think through, what is Jesus saying here? This is absolutely true. But what does it mean? Because, for example, in chapter 21, verse 16, Jesus is going to look at some of the disciples and say, some of you will be killed for my sake. Okay, we will be killed, and yet nothing will hurt us. Jesus, how does that work? What's going on here? What, what Jesus is saying is that all the trials, anything Satan could bring against you is under God's sovereign control. And yes, you have all authority over Satan. Now, God might allow Satan to take your life. God might allow Satan to do that. But God will never allow Satan to take you from him. So nothing can harm you, ultimately, in any ultimate way. That's what Jesus is saying here. Nothing can take you from Christ. You are his now and forever, which is what it's all about. That's why Paul says, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, I'm in good hands with the Lord. Then in verse 20, Jesus says something that is shocking when you think about it. I mean, here he's been celebrating with the disciples. Yes, the demons are subject to you in my name. Yes, you have authority over Satan and over his demons. Yes, people are being freed. Yes, Satan is falling from heaven. 
But, verse 20, he says, nevertheless, yes, all this is happening, but nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So don't rejoice in ministry success. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, what does it mean to have our names written in heaven? It means to be saved. It means to be forgiven for all of our sins. It means to be restored into relationship with our Father, God. That's what it means. So here's the background to this. We've all rebelled against God, every single one of us. We've turned our backs on God. We've said, I want to make up my own mind how I'm going to live. And that's what the Bible calls sin. And that deserves eternal punishment from God. But in great love and in beautiful mercy, God sent Jesus to die on the cross, to pay for our sins. God said in the book of Revelation that he's going to save a vast number that no one can count from every nation, tongue, and tribe. He says this in Revelation 5 and Revelation 7. The vast number that no one can count. And as we read in Revelation 13, 8, he wrote down all of our names in his book before the foundation of the world. Amazing. So how can we tell if our names are written in that book right now? There's a book. Nice if we could just see it. Just Steve Fuller. Okay. But we don't need to do that. We can know now for sure that our names are written in heaven because we are repenting of our sin now. We're not clinging on to any sin. We're, we're not perfect, but we're fighting sin. We're, we're resisting sin. We're repenting. And because we're trusting Jesus to forgive us for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And we're trusting Jesus to change us. Oh, we long to be freed from sin. Free us, Jesus. We're, we're trusting that he will do that because he's promised to. And we're trusting Jesus to satisfy us with his presence. We're repenting. We're trusting Jesus. If that's in your heart now, then if you could see the book of heaven, there you are, right there, written in indelible ink, right there in heaven. And that's what our joy should be in. Do not rejoice in ministry success. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Now, don't misunderstand, though, what Jesus says when he says, don't rejoice in this. Because all through the Bible, we see godly people rejoicing in God's good gifts, right? Family, children, young people, we're so glad you're part of the service today. Um, gifts of like the mountains, the ocean, food. We see godly people rejoicing in God's good gifts. But there's a difference, listen very carefully, there's a difference between rejoicing in God's good gifts and seeking our joy in God's good gifts. When you seek your joy in something, you are pursuing that in order, because that's going to satisfy your longing for joy. You think that's going to satisfy and fill your heart. You're depending on that to fill you. That's what you're doing when you're seeking something for joy. But the only joy that can satisfy you and that can fill you is having your name written in heaven. So is it, is it okay to rejoice in like chicken biryani? Okay. Come on, church. Is the answer is yes. Nod your head. Tell me out here. Is that okay? Is it okay to, to rejoice in like the sunset with the clouds last night? You're not, you're not very enthusiastic here. Church, is that okay? Can you talk through your masks? Okay, good. All right. It is okay. 
What Jesus is saying is don't seek your joy anywhere else because you'll never find it anywhere else. Seek your joy in having your name written in heaven. Now, second question. How does that give us joy? How does having your name written in heaven give you joy? And Jesus answers that in verses 21 and 22. Start with verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Now, just pause there. That phrase, in that same hour, it doesn't mean that like 58 minutes later, he started rejoicing. It's a Greek idiom means at that time, at that time. So let's read it again. In that same hour, at that time, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So Jesus is rejoicing for a strange reason. One is because God has hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed these things to little children. So what are the things that God is hiding from some and revealing to others? I think there's there's two ways we can answer that. One is by looking at the previous verses, because the word these things points back to what Luke has just written. In other words, it's the reality of the kingdom of God coming with authority and power in Jesus Christ. Jesus coming to earth, God coming to earth in the person of Jesus, freeing us from Satan, freeing us from sin, so we can be restored, reconciled to God. God hides that, the reality of the kingdom of God in Jesus. God hides that from the wise and understanding and reveals that to little children. We see the same answer in the next verse, verse 22. Different words to describe the same answer. Look at verse 22. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, Jesus says. And no one knows who the Son is. So part of these things is who the Son is. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is. So some of these things is who the Father is, except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So the Father, the Son, this is revealed to some, namely the little children, like Jesus said in the previous verse. So what God hides from the wise and understanding and reveals to little children is the knowledge of God the Father, Jesus the Son, and God's saving work in in Jesus. And verse 21 says that if we are wise and understanding, God hides that from us, and if we are little children, God reveals that to us. Okay, so that, that raises some more questions. What does it mean to be wise and understanding? And what does it mean to be a little child? Let's start with little child, okay? Little children. What does that mean? So you want to find other places where Jesus talks about this, where he gives more information. And I found a very helpful passage, Matthew 18, verses 3 and 4. Look at what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Get that. 
unless you turn and become like children, namely humble, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So to enter the kingdom, we must become like children. Now, at this point, it's easy to just close our Bibles and say, okay, so what are children like? Well, children, and then we think, children are innocent, aren't they? They're all, they're all innocent. Now, young people, we love you here, but young people, as adults, we are all sinners, okay? Not just the children, not just the adults, we all are. I mean, again, I like to ask, did you parents, did you ever have to teach your children to say, no, or mine, or to lie? No, okay, so I don't think children... Sorry, children, but none of us are innocent, right? Young people, you know what I'm saying, right? Okay. None of us are innocent, not the adults either. So what is Jesus saying here? He's not saying be innocent like a child. He's saying be humble like a child. That is, children are completely dependent upon their parents for everything. So understand your lowly position. You are desperately in need of everything from God. You desperately need God's mercy. You are the opposite of self-reliance. You are completely God-reliant, God-dependent. And there's a humility that comes from thinking, I need God for everything. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's little children. Now, who are the wise and understanding? What's he talking about there? It's not that all wise people are going to have this hidden from them because not all wisdom and not all understanding is bad. Remember the Sermon on the Mount. What was, who was the man who built his house on the rock? I heard somebody, the wise man built his house on the rock. So not all wisdom is bad for sure, right? So what is Jesus saying by wise and understanding? Well, notice he contrasts it with the little children who are lowly and recognizing their absolute dependence upon God. So the wise and understanding are the proud who in their self-reliance think they have no need of God. That's the difference that's going on here. Do you feel that? Huge difference. Now, with that in mind, let's read verses 21 and 22 again, just so that we can see more clearly what Jesus is saying. Verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. So Jesus is saying, Father, thank you that in your justice, you have hidden the truth of who I am from those who think they don't need your mercy. In your justice, you've hidden that truth from those who think they don't need your mercy. And he goes on, and reveal them to little children. So he's saying, thank you that in your mercy you have revealed the truth of who you are and your saving work to those who realize that they desperately need you. Then, end of verse 21, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Verse 22, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father. So because of our sin, the only way we can know who the Son is is if God reveals the Son to us, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So again, because of our sin, none of us can know who the Father is unless Jesus reveals Him to us. Okay, let's just take a little pause here, catch our breath. We've just covered Two tough, tough, tough verses. Let me try to summarize where we are in this passage. Remember verses 17 through 20. 
Jesus joins the disciples in celebrating what God has done through their ministry. But then he says, don't seek your joy in ministry success. Seek your joy in the fact that your names are written in heaven. And then in verses 21 through 22, Jesus rejoices in God's justice of withholding revelation from those who are proud and don't think they need him. And Jesus rejoices in God's mercy in revealing beautiful truths of Jesus and God and the plan of salvation to those who acknowledge they desperately need God. So what all this says, Jesus is explaining here what it means to have your name written in heaven and how that brings you such joy because to have your name written in heaven means that God has revealed to you the truth of who the Father is, who Jesus is, and God's glorious plan of salvation. The God of the universe at one point in your life, and he does this continuing throughout our Christian lives, has revealed these things to you. Broken in, the light went on, you saw, you felt, wow, revelation. That's what happens. Now, don't miss this, because lots of people think that when you're saved, mainly what happens, that the most important thing that happens is that you make a decision to put your trust in Jesus. And you do. And that is very important. No one gets saved without a decision to put their trust in Jesus. But that's not all that happened. That maybe isn't even the most important thing that happened. Because when you were saved, God supernaturally revealed to you who he is, who Jesus is, and the glorious plan of salvation that he's bringing about. I thought about it like this. Like the day before you were saved, okay, you, you could, like, listen to preaching, but you're thinking, you know, I wish he would tell a couple more jokes or something, right? Or, or maybe you're listening to Christian music, like worship music, and it's like, okay, it's that, that beat's not bad. I mean, that, that riff isn't too bad. Not my favorite cup of tea, but... Or, or you're, you open up the Bible, and it's like, okay, you're, you're reading the Bible. It's like, wow, man, I, I think I'm kind of hungry. What's in the refrigerator? That, that's, that's what we used to do, right? Just was, we were blind to the glorious realities that are being talked about here. But when God saved you, everything changed. The light went on. You saw for the first time. You felt for the first time. You experienced and tasted for the first time. The Father revealed Jesus to you. Jesus revealed the Father to you. You felt his love. You sensed his presence, preaching and worship music and reading the scriptures have never been the same since. Now, not every day is, is as, but again, but it's different. We're seeing, we're feeling, we're experiencing. Now, here's an example from church history. Augustine was a leader in North Africa, either probably Tunisia or Algeria, around the year 400 A.D., Amazing, prolific writer, brilliant theologian. And he wrote an excellent book I would encourage all of you to read called The Confessions. His confessions. His story of coming to faith in Christ. And in his early years, Augustine's life was full of worldly sinful pleasures. But listen to what he said happened when God saved him. I want you to listen to this to see the, the revelation, the supernatural heart change that took place. Here's what he said. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. 
You, he's talking to God, you drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. See that revelation that happened, this supernatural change that took place from that moment when God saved Augustine? When God the Father and Jesus the Son are revealed to you, you see all those other joys are fruitless when it comes to completely satisfying me. Only God in Christ is the true, the sovereign joy. Okay, so we're asking the question, how does having our names written in heaven give us such heart-satisfying joy that that's the joy we're going to seek now in the rest of our lives and experience forever? How is that? And the answer is because to have your name written in heaven means that God reveals himself in Christ to you, and he is the true, the sovereign joy. So when he reveals himself to you for the first time, you have all satisfying joy in him. Now, Jesus wants, though, to, to make sure we are fully persuaded of this, that his disciples and us, that we are fully convinced. And so he wants to answer one more question. Why is it that we, New Testament believers, are so blessed? And the answer is in verses 23 and 24. Then, turning to the disciples, he said privately, so while Jesus had been talking, as happened so often, Crowds started to gather around him, and, and what's, he, what's he saying? What, what? They're, they're listening in, okay? So then he turns to the disciples, and he said privately, just to them, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So he says privately to the disciples, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Now, that word blessed means happy, fortunate, favored, blessed, blessed. So why are the disciples so happy, fortunate, favored? Why? It's because many prophets and kings in the Old Testament desired to see what they see and hear what they hear. I mean, think about it. All the Old Testament saints longed to see the revelation of God and Jesus that the disciples were seeing, eyewitness, and that we are seeing in the scriptures. David, Ruth, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hannah, Esther, Love what they were seeing from God, but longed to see. There's more. Oh, I know there's more. Longing to see it. And we see it. The disciples, by eyewitness and actual hearing Jesus' very words, and we by opening up the scriptures and reading. Now, what was it that Jeremiah and Sarah and Abraham and David and Haggai didn't see? What was it that they did not see that we do see? 
Think about what they saw. They saw powerful displays all through the Old Testament of God's greatness. God's exaltation, greatness above everything else. I mean, think about it. God delivered Israel from Pharaoh, from Egypt, with mighty signs and wonders. Just astonishing to read that in the book of Exodus. God parted the Red Sea so God's people could go across. This display of greatness and sovereign power. God knocked down the walls of Jericho. God gave the people of Israel the promised land. God filled the temple with his presence so that the priests weren't able to minister. God poured out fire upon Elijah's soaking wet sacrifice to show all the priests of Baal that your God's nothing. So greatness of God was displayed all through the Old Testament. That's what they saw. Greatness. But what they did not see like the disciples saw and like we see in the scriptures, what they did not see was that the, the God who is infinitely greater above everything else in the universe has lowered himself, lowered himself so low to become one of us in order to save us. They saw the greatness of God. We see the greatness of God and the astonishing mercy and love of him lowering himself to this point. I mean, think about it. We see God in Jesus born as a baby, a baby, lowliness, laid in a feeding trough, lowliness. We see God in Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, lowliness, touching an unclean leper, lowliness. We see God in Jesus allowing himself to be arrested, to be beaten by the Roman soldiers. God in Jesus allowing himself to have his back torn open with the scourging, to have himself nailed to the cross. We, we see God in Jesus suffering on the cross. We see God in Jesus dying on the cross. Some of you are familiar with this book of Puritan prayers called the Valley of Vision, I think. If not, become familiar with it. Very helpful. Here's, the, here's a prayer, a line from a prayer I read this week. This is very powerful. It, he's asking God, show me, show me the shame, the agony, the bruises of incarnate God. Look at the love, the mercy, the compassion that's displayed when the God who is the greatest of all lowers himself to become a man and to die to save us. Jesus wants the disciples to understand that they have the infinite privilege of seeing this. And we have the infinite privilege of seeing this as well. This is where heart-filling pleasure and joy is found in beholding God's mercy in being so great and lowering himself so far to save us. That grace, that mercy, that compassion is just breathtaking. 
It is stunning. God's love through Jesus on the cross is the most glorious beauty ever, anywhere, at any time, by an infinite measure. God's love through Jesus on the cross is the center of world history. It's the, the focal point of, of the whole universe. All the angels, <gasps> stunned. It's the focal point of the whole universe. And it's God's love displayed in Christ on the cross that is our boast, and that is our joy, and that is our hope, and that is our glory, now and forever. He is our all-satisfying treasure. So, don't rejoice in ministry success or God's good gifts. Thank God for them, and you can find joy in them when God gives them, but don't seek your joy there. Seek your joy in your name being written in heaven because that means God is revealing his glory in Christ to you. And so see and behold and worship. Now let me close with four questions. Ask yourself these four questions. First, is your name written in heaven? That's the most important question some of you need to ask today. Is your name written in heaven? You can know it is, like I said earlier, because you are repenting of your sin and you're trusting Jesus to forgive you He's the only way you can be forgiven, and you're trusting Jesus to change you. He's promised to change you. He is changing you, and you're trusting Jesus, who he is, his glory displayed on the cross to satisfy you, your relationship with him. He is your all-satisfying treasure. If you are repenting and trusting Jesus, your name is written in heaven. If you ask that question and you are not repenting of your sin and you're not trusting Jesus, then see the glory of Jesus that we've talked about this morning. And turn to him. Repent of your sin. Fruitless joys. Fruitless joys. Turn from them. Are you kidding me? Why hold on to fruitless joys? Embrace him. Trust him. Your name will be written in heaven. Second, where are you seeking your joy? Honestly, where are you seeking your joy? To answer that, ask two questions. What do you think about when you're daydreaming the most? Now, what do you think about the most when you're daydreaming? That's the question. Where does your mind go when, it, when you're just kind of on, on hold? What do you think about the most? And then another way of asking the same question, what do you enjoy talking about the most? That is what you're seeking for your joy. Let, let the light go on. Oh, that's what you're seeking for your joy. Now again, there's nothing wrong with rejoicing in God's good gifts, but don't seek your joy in God's good gifts because none of them will satisfy you. Seek your joy in knowing God's glory displayed in Jesus the Son. Third, what can you do to seek this greatest of all joys? Humble yourself like a child. See that you, you are totally dependent upon God's mercy for everything everything. You bring nothing to the table except sin. 
We need everything from him, and he gives everything to us in Christ, but own it and humble yourself because of it. And then admit how much you need God's mercy. Ask him to show you his glory. And take time to pray, study God's word, and worship. As you do that humbly, he will delight to reveal himself and Jesus and the beautiful plan of salvation to you more that your joy may be full. Last question. Why is this so important? It's because God's glory displayed in Jesus is the most majestic beauty there is anywhere at any time. He, Jesus, is the center of world history. He is the focus of the universe. And nothing, nothing will strengthen you more. Nothing will comfort you more. Nothing will satisfy you more than beholding God's glory in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. I pray, Lord, that you would help people right now see how desperately they need your mercy so they would move from being proud to being humble. I pray that you would help us turn from things we've been seeking for our joy that are fruitless and that we would turn to you afresh right now to seek our joy in you. And we praise you for your glorious mercy in Christ, the beautiful love you've displayed on the cross, and that we have the joy of knowing you and worshiping you, glorious God, in Christ forever. In Jesus' name, amen.